Podcast. I'm your host, Marcus Luer, and today we're staying in Asia, crossing over to Hong Kong to catch up with Scott Levy. Welcome to the podcast, Scott. Thank you, Marcus. Great to be here. Great to have you, and uh, many people will recognize you, for, of course, from your many decades with the NBA, and this is basically going to be a big part, of course, of our topic taking a deep dive into your career for you know several decades in the NBA, both in the U.S. initially and now, of course, over, you know, what is it now, 12, 13 years, I believe, uh, or if not more, here in Asia. And um, so lots of interesting stories, I'm sure, around the growth of the NBA, the period um, you were in part of this, and a bit about, of course, your future. So as we always do in this podcast, we kind of start right at the beginning, um, how it all started. In your case, you know, coming out of, uh, where is it, University of Albany and getting a job at Young and Rubicon, um, I can think as a media planner. Take us back there. I think we're here in 1992, 93. Take us back there and get the party started. Sure. Thank you. Uh, well, you know, it actually started a little bit before that. After I graduated from university, um, I hadn't done a whole lot. Uh, I really, I had been to three states and I took one school trip to London and I felt uh, I needed to explore a little bit. So uh, I found this program where I was able to go over to London and work. Um, they helped you find a job, which turned out for me to be a, a bartender in a restaurant in Leicester Square. And, uh, you know, trying to, you know, explore a little bit. And I met a lot of people along the way and realized it's, a, you know, beyond the three states that I had seen, it's a pretty big world out there. Um, right. While I was there, uh, I, met a, uh, I met a woman who I actually went to school with. And, you know, at the time we were dating and now she's been my wife for, for quite some time. And, and after we finished, we spent about six months in London working. And then we traveled around uh, mostly Southern Europe, Israel, Egypt for about another six months. Um, and now really just fell in love with travel, with culture, with food. And all I really wanted to do after that was figure out a way to continue traveling for the rest of my life. And uh, obviously, I couldn't do that without getting a job. So uh, when we got back to the U.S., uh, I did start my career in advertising. But it was with the intention to find a way to work in international advertising, okay. uh, getting to Young and Rubicam, and then eventually to McCann Erickson, where I had my first job as international media supervisor and had an opportunity to work with clients like Nike and Coca-Cola that had uh, far-flung international businesses. Got it. Where are you from originally in the U.S.? I grew up in Queens, New York. Queens, New York. All right. Awesome. Cool. So from Queens, New York, we're now in Young, Rubicon, and that's where, where was that job? Um, in, in New York as well or? Yeah, that was based in Manhattan. Manhattan, right? Okay, cool. So you, I saw you got a, you had sort of Coca Cola, Nike, Gillette, you know, some illustrious names, of course, already. Um, yeah, what were you doing for them? Actually, you were just doing media planning, as in their advertising around the world, or what was the exact job there? Yeah, exactly. We were we were helping them develop plans, global plans. Uh, you know, for the always Coca Cola uh, program. If you remember that. That was a global rollout, and what we did was we just figured out how to do that best in each country. And you know, at that time, after leaving Young and Rubicam and going to McCann Erickson, they had offices all around the world, and I would work with our local colleagues to identify the best plans, coordinate them, and then bring them back to Atlanta to make sure that Coca-Cola was comfortable and rolling out their their global strategy. 
Uh, it was it was fantastic. Sounds like fun. Yeah, it's a it's a sort of that's sort of my world too. I love that part. Um, now, how do you get from McCann Erickson into the world of the NBA? Talk about the the move there. Yeah, I mean that was another uh, unorthodox step. Uh, you know, I even though I was working as an international media supervisor, uh, I didn't have the opportunity to travel. We were doing everything by phone. Mm -hmm. And uh, I really missed the travel. So there was I went home and I talked to my wife and told her I was frustrated. I really wanted to go to Australia. Uh, so she said, let's take a vacation. And I suggested, well, why don't we just quit our jobs and, <laughs> and go travel? And uh, she said, you you first. So I uh, went in the next day and, and I resigned from McCann Erickson. Uh, my wife realized she had no choice but to do the same thing. And then. We booked a one-way ticket to uh, Beijing right. and spent the next six months uh, working our way south through China, Southeast Asia, Australia, and New Zealand. Cool. And uh, along the way, reaching out to every one of my McCann colleagues, all of my international advertising relationships, and really did kind of an on-the-run on um, education or you know a little, a little program where I got to understand by being on the ground, each of these countries, and it just further uh, pushed me in that, you know, I really wanted to spend more time traveling and working in international. Man. So when I got back, I, I called everybody I knew in the industry. And luckily, one of the most important partnerships that Coca-Cola had was with the NBA. So I got to know Heidi Ubroth, uh, who mm -hmm. uh, at the time was uh, leading the international media business for the NBA. And right. she was one of my calls, and she eventually offered me a job to lead uh, to lead the international advertising component at the NBA. Awesome. Yeah, Heidi is uh, obviously another well-known figure, especially in the NBA. Uh, how, just to give you a sense here, how old were you around that time when you were we talking about now? My late 20s. In your late twenties, right? Okay, uh, and, and the reason I, I sort of we go a little into this is you know we do have a lot of students and you know executives who sort of want to break into the industry and trying to you know find their way around. And I think it's always interesting to hear someone like yourself who's obviously now been there and done it, um, how it all started, and you know traveling around the world, and just getting a sense of really what it is you want to do. Um, I think it's a great, great, uh, great starting story here. So now we're in the NBA. Um, you're a senior VP. I'm not sure whether you were that. Right Right at with the start there, but uh, so you know you're dealing with TV rights. Obviously, the NBA always sells rights directly, um, as far as I know. Um, I've never seen really an agency representing it. Um, so your job is to go and sell media rights to partners around the world. You had a particular territory, or which was sort of what was your remit exactly? Yeah, I actually started as the manager of advertising and, and handling. Uh, kind of the other side of the business, so helping the the, the partners of the NBA, our sponsors, uh, integrate their advertising into NBA okay. program around the world. And then then I I also took on additional responsibility uh, of program sales. And I remember my first two my first two deals were in Kenya and Angola. I remember oh, wow. my boss a boss came in and just said to me like, "You need to do these deals." I had never done program sales before, and he goes. Well, just get on the phone, start talking to them, and here's what the old deal looked like, and you just make sure it's a better deal. Uh, <laughs> and uh, I think I think I did that. I'm not sure uh, how much better, but I remember it was a, maybe a little bit better deal. And then from there, it just continued. Uh, you know, we you know, I, I eventually took over all of program sales. Uh, so my remit was everything outside the U.S. and Canada. 
And, uh, you know, we expanded our distribution to well over 200 countries and territories around the world. Wow. Okay. Uh, Hi, and just out of curiosity, and I'm sure it's, since it's sold, uh, you know, you may be able to say it. Uh, what was the sort of size of that first deal? I'm assuming a few thousand dollars, right? Or, or was it bigger than that already? Yeah, I think it was somewhere in the range of thirty to fifty thousand uh, okay. dollars. Well, that's back not bad. Then. Yeah, that's what I thought. I that's, was pretty what, happy. that's pretty decent money. I, I had some on the, on the. I think their first deal was three thousand dollars, and I thought it was the biggest deal they've ever done. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, that's not bad. That's a good a good first deal, especially out of those countries. Um, now, so let's let's talk a bit about this sort of what I call the first decade in the NBA, because obviously you had sort of two blocks there. Um, you know, the growth of the business, uh, you know, what drove it? Um, you know, we're again, we're now just to give a sense of the decade we're talking about here in 1996 here now, right? Um, so the first decade to, let's say, 2006, where you were there um, in the international TV business. Uh, give us some sense of, you know, what drove it? Um, obviously, David Stern, I believe, was the commissioner at the time. And he had obviously a great vision how to take the 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 gospel, so to speak, of the NBA around the world. Um, what is it what you guys were doing from a TV point of view? How do you get to 200 countries? And where was it? Where did it start? Um, maybe as in comparison, when you started, how many countries did it have? And, you know, you, you mentioned you, had, you landed at 200. Yeah, Dave, David was definitely a visionary. And he understood that uh, the business, was, the basketball was an indigenous sport around the world. And there was an opportunity for the NBA to play a role there. Uh, he actually started distributing uh, distributing tapes, VHS tapes, and he would uh, ship them, you know, on, by boat, and people would pick them up, and they ride on their bicycle, and they would deliver them to various media companies. and And, and, oh, and David has right. famously spent time in China in the in the late '80s and early '90s, uh, ensuring that our games were on air. Personally, did that, and you know, he he had two, you know, he had a lot of passions, but two of his passions were uh, the globality of the game and media. Mm -hmm. And uh, my role was in the international media group. So I was squarely in the crosshairs of what he wanted to do, pushing us to make sure that we had we had broad distribution, that we understand how technology was developing and that we were uh, ensuring our games were accessible to our fans around the world. And by making them accessible, increasing the fan base as well. So, you know, that st it preceded me, this international distribution. But when I got there. You know, we were probably in, you know, there, there were there were pan-regional networks, right? So sure. ESPN, Star Sports, et cetera. So we had we had a lot of reach. We were reaching a lot of countries, but the number of deals we had was probably in the in the dozens. But right. uh, what was a major shift was we as technology continued to develop and as countries started to launch their own local channels, we then started to do local deals, country right. by country deals, yeah. which allowed for much more localization, local language, local content creation. And therefore, much more engagement among uh, among the viewers. Yep. Yeah. The, well, that, and that's sort of you know that's sort of what we as an agency did as well. Um, a lot of times when we took on projects here in Asia, we we took them kind of what exactly country by country. That's the word <laughs> we use as well. Um, now let's talk a bit about you know maybe just you pick one or two examples of countries where either there was very little coverage initially because it's a let's say football or a different sport, cricket or whatever was really popular there uh, and you guys managed to break into it or even some of the bigger ones which sort of made the headline news and, and you know, maybe you can share either some numbers or, or a bits of stories of how they came about. 
Sure. I mean, I think one of the more interesting was ones was the the development uh, pro- proliferation of channels in China. Mm-hmm. Uh, we had been on CCTV, as I said, going back to the the early '90s, but you know there started to be regional channels popping up, and obviously right. China's a very big place. And and then you had uh, you know as time went on, you had more different methods of distribution. But you know at one point we had. Uh, you know, north of 20 deals in China where right. you, know, you had you had national, you had local, and then right. you had uh, a variety of different uh, uh, forms of media. So going into the country, I spent my first 10 years, I spent a tremendous amount of time going in and out of China. I was probably there, you know, by the 2000s, I was probably there five, six times a year mm. directly negotiating those deals. And um, not speaking Mandarin, that was pretty challenging in a lot of cases. But uh, we we were able to get through, and I do remember after a particularly difficult negotiation uh, going uh, with the Shanghai Media Group, going out to a, a very formal dinner where we proceeded to celebrate with uh, bottles of Mao Tai, which I had not previously experienced. <laughs> oh, and then, yes, I know that. I, I experienced it for several days after that dinner as well. So uh, it took a while to recover from that, but it was an incredible celebration, and it kind of uh, really, for me, it was just another example of kind of, of kind of bridging the cultural gap. You know, having a very difficult negotiation, going out and celebrating, developing these really strong bonds uh, with people that um, I would not have had the opportunity to meet uh, if I didn't, you know, enter this industry. If I didn't have this desire to travel and, and understand the local cultures, it was who was your counterpart there? Was it Mr. Liu or who was the uh, uh, Shanghai media? Mr. Shu at the time. Yeah, okay. Yeah. So there. Yeah. I mean, it, it, you know, we've had an office in China since 2004. So uh, yeah, I, I feel I know how hard it is to do business there as a Westerner, especially if you, of course, don't speak Chinese. So um, there's a lot of drinking part of it. Uh, absolutely. <laughs> um, now, again, let's. The, the the key, of course, is you know that the MBA really keeps it all in house and and develops it. I I think whether even you and I had this conversation or with some of your colleagues over the years, we've tried a few times to represent and or even bring deals uh, to the MBA when we had a client or a broadcaster, and it sort of never really worked. Uh, but that obviously is a is a really clear strategy and or or you know. Um, you know, it's, it, I would say a bit different than many many other rights holders. Even the Premier League right, uh, has used agencies and sold big chunks of to agencies over the years. So, uh, talk a bit about that. Um, where does that mindset come from um, to sort of really say, look, we know the brand best, and we don't need anyone else's help, so to speak? Yeah, I think you know that's we we've met it. We obviously known each other for a long time. We've had a lot of these conversations trying to figure out how we can work together, knowing, you know, how successful you've been with so many properties. Uh, but, you know, for the NBA, you know, we we view our business much broader than media. You know, we really want to uh, build this game, you know, game of basketball globally. And, you know, we have over 400 people based outside the U.S. Hmm. that are, are focused on uh, all aspects of the game. And, and we take the building of the game very seriously. So when we look at our content distribution, we really want to understand who the partners are and what they're going to do with the product and make sure that the localization is going to happen, that they are going to dedicate, you know, it's the right time slot, it's the right number of of, of uh, airings of the content, the the local creation of content with the local talent. We, we want to be part of those decisions all along the way. 
and uh, you know David and now Commissioner Adam Silver, you know really believe that for us to be most effective, we really have to be you know with the last mile. We have to be in the office of our partners, and we have to be um, kind of all 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 over them to make sure that they're prioritizing us as a business and as a brand. And then when we do other activities, whether that be around merchandising or events and you know even our grassroots components, we want our partners to be involved in that, to be you know amplifying those elements so we can get more people playing the game, we get more people following the game. And, and now with social media, of course, we have so many other outlets to do that as well. And all of that stuff ties together and it would be a little bit more difficult if we had some you know, a third party out there representing us that would then have to be an intermediary in that communication. Right. And, 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 you know, I, I think it's obviously worked well. The NBA has been super successful, so I, I don't think anyone can fault the strategy there. Um, and, uh, yeah, and you know, we'll, we'll get definitely more deeper into the whole media's landscape uh, when we talk about the second part of your staying here in Asia. Um, now, while we're still in the, that first decade there, I'd love to talk a bit about you know, you you mentioned David Stern, of course, um, that media was a big part of him, uh, his strategy and you being right in there. And, you know, and therefore, I'm assuming you've had quite a bit of interaction and, and him being such a charismatic leader and, of course, well known as well around the world. Love to hear your thoughts on him and his leadership style and, and what you learned from him. Yeah, Dave, David was uh, incredibly impactful in, in my career uh, when I joined the NBA. Uh, it was right when international was was starting to grow. I mean, a few years later, Dirk Davidsky joined the league. And then after that, it was Pal Gasol from Spain. And then, of course, Yao Ming joined in, mm. in 2002. And you know, David, David had really high expectations for everyone. And, uh, you know, you found yourself uh, trying to to live up to those expectations every day. You know, he pushed you to be better. He did that with everyone. And, you know, so many NBA employees have had such meaningful interactions with David where uh, he would just ask you lots of questions about the business. And, you know, you're you got to a point where you wanted to have all the answers for him. You wanted to make sure you were the smartest person in the room. And while you're probably never going to be that with David in the room, you would often find yourself being that way when you were, you know, if I was at Sportel, and having a negotiation with somebody in Poland, I, I, I might have actually known more about the Polish media landscape than the person that was sitting across from me because that was David's expectation. Right. Uh, you know, whether it was TV households or how many channels or the cost per channels or what kind of satellite dish, all of those things you had to understand to be able to make sure that the NBA was in the best possible position in that country to have a meaningful impact and grow the sport. Now, it wasn't always pleasant. I got lots of phone calls from David and a lot of meetings with David where I went out and I, I did not like that exchange, but generally they ended up being positive and David had a way of making you feel really good about that interaction. And uh, again, ultimately pushing you to want to be better, represent the league better and make sure that um, you knew everything you possibly could about the business before, before you put yourself in a position where you had to use that knowledge. Right. Yeah, that's great. I've heard similar stories from others who've had, you know, either worked at the NBA or someone like David Falk. Now, let's talk a bit about the the player side of it. Um, obviously, you know, there was still sort of uh, 
that Michael Jordan a part of it, although his you know, I think you, you when you joined that was sort of sort of more of the tail end of his obviously illustrious career. Um, you mentioned Yao Ming, who I think joined in two thousand two. And, uh, you know, and Dirk obviously coming in there. Um, and again, if you have a player of that sort of level, uh, the country where he comes from automatically, I'm assuming, pays attention and rights fees go up and attention and everything else. So let's talk a bit about this, especially, you know, Yao Ming and China, which you mentioned earlier, where you spend a lot of time, you know, how game changing was he, you know, um, joining the NBA? Yeah, I mean, Mike, Michael Jordan was uh, clearly, and everybody understands how impactful he was from the league. And David Stern used to describe him as, uh, you know, for people out of uniform, out of uniform, he was probably the most recognizable person in the world at one point. Uh, and uh, I was lucky enough to be in in the arena uh, for his last game uh, as a Chicago Bull, where he hit that iconic shot in Utah right. and uh, kept his hand up in the air and. Uh, and that was the end before, of course, he came back and, and played for the Washington Wizards for a few years. So I did catch the tail end of, of Michael's career, and, and I'm thankful for that. Uh, but there's no question, you know, Yao's uh, arrival was also impactful. I mean, basketball has been played in China since the, the late 1800s. And uh, even during, you know, some of the more difficult uh, times of the Long March and the Cultural Revolution, basketball continued to be a, a mainstay among the Chinese population. And Yao, Yao grew up watching the games uh, on television, on CCTV, thanks to David's efforts in the, in the early 90s. So when, when he came into the league and now uh, China had a local hero uh, to, un to appreciate and to support, um, it really did uh, dramatically increase the, the fan interest in NBA games. And that it continues to this day. Um, and but Yao was also very special, and, and he was such a unique ambassador. You know, he had a great sense of humor. He understood that you know he was representing China, but also playing in a league uh, where he uh, he had to compete at the highest level. And you know, you know, after a few years in the career in his career, he really had uh, garnered the respect of of everybody, whether it was the players on the court, the the press, uh, you know, really the world. Uh, it was just incredible. He was a very unique individual, and continues to be. I know, very active in, in so Absolutely. many ways. Yeah, he's currently he's still he's the president of the Chinese Basketball Association, right? Exactly. He, yeah. Exactly. <clears throat> so clearly uh, making an impact be, way beyond his playing years there. Um, now, similar. Let's talk a bit about Dirk um, as an interesting example of a foreign player in the league from a you know big media market. How big of an impact did he have for you in Germany? Uh, you know, he he. Um, it was impactful, but it wasn't, uh, you know, what we found was you still have to have fan affinity for the sport right. for it to be majorly, you know, really be impactful to the broader business. There was no question there was an uptick and we continue to have uh, good distribution and good partnerships in Germany. But it wasn't the same impact that Yao had because right. in Germany, uh, basketball's not, you know, in the top two or three sports in the country. Right. And there are German athletes competing on the global stage across multiple sports. So it wasn't a novelty right. for a German athlete to be at the top of his sport. Um, what it did spark was more German uh, kids playing the game. And you can see we have more German players in the NBA right now. Right. Uh, some of them actually still playing in, in, you know, in the final four teams that are left in, this, in the season. So uh, that's, that's a, you know, a big part of the impact that a, a local player has is um, youth development. And we saw that in China, we saw that in Spain, we saw that in Germany and across really 
I mean, now we have players from virtually every country around the world playing in the league. Mm-hmm. And uh, that has really sparked greater interest at the youth level. Yeah, that makes sense. That. I mean, they, again, I'm just sort of crapping through my uh, data here. Uh, you know, the, the big names, I guess, around that time were, in, from an American point of view, I guess you have Shaq there, Kobe Bryant, right? I think was around that time as well, the, his, his big uh, years. Um, who else was there? Um, how much of these these megastars, the American megastars in some cases, and we know with MJ, we know the answer there already, but how much was a, a Shaq and a Kobe driving what you were doing internationally and they were equally seen as these big, you know, heroes from around, you know, to, to people around the world? There's no question that, you know, the, the players that are generally the most popular in the U.S. are also the players that are most popular internationally Mm. Uh, because once you start watching the game you know for whatever reason you come in if you come in because you want to see uh, your local athlete then you're going to start to see the other the other players as well and start to realize wow it's pretty incredible what those players are doing you know right about that time is when LeBron joined the league as well Um, and you know Kobe and LeBron in particular just did a tremendous job you know as social media really started to come into play of and engaging with the local audience they, they travel quite a bit you know kobe would you know go to the go to china and japan and philippines right. and elsewhere in europe you know a few times a year in partnership with us and also in partnership with um you know the footwear partners that they they work with yep. so showing up doing local activities engaging with the audience uh really helped raise their profile and now when we look at you know our top 10 selling jerseys for example uh, the lists in China, the lists in Brazil, the list in Paris or in France, almost exactly the same right. as the list you'll see out of the U.S. Okay, interesting. Yeah, and it does make sense. Uh, now, let's you just mentioned it, you teed it up nicely here. The uh, you know that the the stars traveling and the teams traveling. Um, you know, in football, soccer, that's a given, right? Um, and everyone here in Asia appreciates and enjoys these games uh, when these teams comes out here. I don't feel at least or i haven't seen it maybe enough um that the nba is is that aggressive in that space um but it, it does a few um around the world so maybe talk a bit about it um again a bit about the strategy how you choose the countries where you're going and uh you know and during your again we're still sticking a bit to the first decade here what sort of a you know maybe matches did you guys do at during that time where did you go uh yeah so of course the model is is different right our, our the way our league is set up uh you know the nba represents our teams internationally and uh whereas the football clubs can go out and do independent uh Correct. discussions and travel and they can play each other or they can play local teams uh you know for international games or global games as we call them uh you know the nba is having those discussions and what we really want to do Uh, is make sure that those games are going to be impactful for the long term in the country where we participate. Uh, You know, it's a limited audience that can actually get into the building, Uh, you know, know, depending on, you know, 10 to 20,000 people that can see the game live. So, you know, what what is bringing two teams into a country going to do for the popularity of the game, potentially the media rights in the future, uh, and, you know, fan affinity uh, across the board? So that's how we... We evaluate these opportunities and, you know, we generally travel somewhere between, you know, six and eight teams each year mm-hmm. and it's a big world, right? So, you know, we, this year we've already announced that we'll be playing uh, the Golden State Warriors and Washington Wizards will be playing in Japan in October. 
Following that, we'll have games in Abu Dhabi. Uh, there will be a couple of other announcements for for games in other parts of the world. Uh, and that, you know, it's a very, very heavy lift, bringing two teams of rock stars by charter plane into a country to play games, to practice. It's generally right at the start of our season, so they're in training camp. So okay. it has to be really structured, and they have to have access to all the facilities that they would have if they stayed home. Right. But it's gotten a lot easier recently maybe in the last, maybe not so recent, but 15, 20 years, where teams understand that this is a tremendous bonding experience for them prior to the start of the season. And especially when there's a local player, like in this case, Rui Hachimura uh, of the Wizards, will be showing his team around Japan and potentially the places that he grew up and spent time, Mm. you know, as he was developing. And that that's really meaningful to the players and, and continues to build more cohesiveness as they start to uh, you know, as they they start the season. Yeah, and and so when did this sort of travel started? Um, when you were you know in the early part of your career there, uh, was that already a, a part of the fixtures that every year a couple of teams would travel? Because um, I have to admit, maybe I didn't follow it as much. Um, you know, trying to think of you know how how has, has it always been what the NBA has been doing, or is more of a you know the last ten years, fifteen years kind of. We, we did our first international games in Japan in 1990. 1990, uh, okay. 1990, and then there was an event called the McDonald's Championship in Europe mm-hmm. uh, that started soon after the Olympics, uh, the Barcelona Olympics, where the Dream Team participated. So we've been going to Asia you know, for 30 years. We've been going to Europe for about 25. We've regularly played games in, in Latin America as well. So it definitely preceded me, but more games, you know, when I started in 96, more games started to, to happen, right? We we did our first games in, you know, so I was responsible for for some of the games in Latin America, some of the games in Europe. We had an event called the uh, the NBA Europe Tour where we sent four teams over to play in Europe, which is the first time we did that in, in the uh, early 2000s. Uh, I had a long and arduous negotiation with Dentsu to bring two teams to Japan in 2003. Uh, and then, of course, uh, we did for the first time ever in 2004 – uh, we did uh, the NBA China games. Right. We, we brought Yao over uh, to play, which was, you know, we played the first games in Shanghai. And uh, let's just say the first time I walked into that arena, I was a little concerned. Uh, but it it eventually, uh, the arena turned out to be a great venue. And now, of course, they have just spectacular buildings all over China. But at that right. time, 2004, it was a pretty unique thing to do, and I was, you know, thrilled to be one of the leaders to to make that happen. And then, of course, to be on the ground and in the arena for that event was just yeah, a spectacular. They are amazing these things. Now, again, from what I see, is mostly that the matches are against another NBA team, uh, or do you play against local opponents as well? Uh, occasionally, uh, in the McDonald's Championship, uh, that was one NBA team playing against uh, top European clubs. Okay. And, and we did play in China one time against the Chinese national team. But, you know, the NBA level of basketball is extremely high, of course. And uh, it can be challenging to to find quality matchup. I mean, there are some teams in Europe we played now more recently, you know, against Barcelona, against Real Madrid, uh, as those the level of play there has as as uh, continued to develop. But we want to make sure, especially for our fans, you know, when they're coming in, they're going to see an experience that they enjoy in a competitive game. And there are many, many countries in the world where 
an sure. NBA team is going to be challenged be by challenged. a local. Absolutely. Yeah, no, that, that's for sure. It is the double the two, two either. Um, now, again, when I look at football, right, when these clubs come out, it, as you rightly said, it's it's a great thing for the club um, on many levels, bonding, getting ready for the season. At the same time, of course, it's a huge opportunity for the club to connect with their fans, with their community. Um, and, and you pointed out very clearly that the big difference is the clubs can do it, the football clubs can do it on their own. There's a lot of freedom of what they're allowed to do. And I do know, uh, having had conversation with NBA teams, that there are more restrictions because the way the NBA, I guess, is structured. Um, how much do the clubs then do take advantage of this to try to build their own brand, their own image, selling more merchandise, selling more whatever, uh, maybe finding local sponsors out of certain countries, you know, how much has that sort of evolved, again, from, you know, the early days to where it was maybe more of a novelty to now where it is obviously part of the regular program? Uh, it, it's definitely evolved. And I would say the last 10 years, it's, it's, it's uh, accelerated. Uh, you know, it, it, there was a time when we had to convince the teams to participate, to, to travel outside the U.S., you know, mm -hmm. the coaches would not want to disrupt training camp, get ready for the season, understandably, because, you know, they're judged on wins and losses and not on jet lag. Yeah. Uh, so we want, but now over the last 10 years, again, as more international players have joined the league and, you know, they want to bring their team back to the country and, and have them experience that and show off a little bit. And, mm -hmm. and owners have now, you know, a lot of our owners have turned over and we now have, um, you know, global businessmen that understand the world is a big place. And they also want to bring their brand to another country. And now we have more and more teams approaching us and saying, you know, we'd like to go here, here or here. And um, and we want to look for long term business opportunities as a result of that. Right. So we've worked with the teams to make sure that, you know, they have some freedom to be able to, to grow their businesses. There are things that the NBA does control to make it sure it's fair for all the teams, but teams can now find international sponsors and uh, work with them both in the arena and in the local country. Um, there is an opportunity to generate local merchandise. And of course, there's always an opportunity to bring season ticket holders with them uh, as part of that effort to bring them over to whatever country they might be traveling to so that they can have private tours and travel with the team and have real unique experiences um, beyond just coming to the arena for 41 regular season dates a year. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, ah, cool. I think it's an interesting the, the tour. I'm currently involved in bringing Man United and Liverpool here to Bangkok this summer, and that's why I'm sort of a bit curious about how how it compares with what you guys are doing because it's just a huge match, right? And uh, of course, the as you said earlier, the uh, the activities around it, putting two huge teams on a plane with everyone else around it, they're traveling. With about a hundred plus people, uh, is 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 insane. So uh, it's an interesting thing. Now let's yeah. let's. I wish I, wish I was going to be in uh, Asia for the summer because I would have hit you up for some tickets to that. Yeah, that's a, no, it's it's that's a pretty be, amazing it, event. Exactly, sure. that's about as big as it gets in this part of yeah. the world here. <laughs> that's the two Absolutely. biggest clubs probably in the world here. Uh, now you sort of you know after those first ten years, um, you left for a very short period. Uh, started I think your own business called MG. Global Sports and Media, um, although it was you know it was a couple of years only. Um, what was the the reason and and what were you doing during those couple of years? Yeah, I mean this this was a, a bit of a tough stretch for me. Um, you know, my mom my mom had just passed away, and 
my boys were getting older and my dad was uh, kind of struggling with the you know life transition as anybody would and and it, I, I was traveling all the time um, I was probably out of the US for you know half the year and uh, long trip long trips as well like I said I was going to China quite a lot and I'd be gone sometimes for two weeks at a time and um, just realized that you know I needed to step away and uh, prioritize some other things in my life at that time and uh, you know it was uh, it was a very difficult conversation I was really enjoying what I was doing and you know, I spoke to, to Heidi and to David and, and explained the situation. They were incredibly supportive uh, of the decision. So um, I started up this company after taking about seven, I took about six months just to, to help my dad um, move to another location to really spend a lot of time with my wife and, and my boys and uh, really get kind of reacquainted with uh, with everything that I was missing when I was away. Mm. And then, yeah, started up MJ Global Sports and Media. MJ is stands for Matthew and Joshua, the names of my two boys, not for uh, you know famous basketball player. <laughs> and uh, and and you know, again, the NBA was incredibly helpful. It was actually David Stern that uh, was recommending some people to me, and my first few clients came through him. And then right. I just really did some consulting work, uh, you know, on a part time basis to make sure I could continue to to spend time with my dad and 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 help my sister and with that and and with the boys and um it was a great time i mean it was about two and a half years in total and i was able to i did i did a few triathlons uh, i did some other races i cooked a lot of uh, a lot of meals for my wife and uh, just had a had a fantastic time wow. doing all that but the appeal, of course, of the NBA so, seemed to have, you know, was strong enough to bring you back. Um, and so let's get into that uh, second half here, in a sense. Um, you know, A, you know, what was it? What brought you back? Um, and then, of course, you you obviously moved, you know, to a different part of the world as well. Uh, I'm not sure whether it was right at the beginning or during that uh, next uh, segment here. So talk us through that. Yeah, it was it was to come back to to take the role that I currently have, and uh, as I mentioned, you know, uh, David and, and Heidi were incredibly supportive, and I was having regular communication with them during uh, during that time I was away. And then at one point, Heidi called me up, and she goes, "I I think I have something that might interest you." And of course, she knew that I love to travel, and she and I had talked about the idea of of me, me moving abroad at some point with the NBA and. And so you know, when she talked to me about this role in Hong Kong and, and I, I had a chance to talk to my wife, it was kind of everything we, we were looking for. I mean, we wanted our, our kids to have the opportunity to experience another country in a meaningful way. And they were uh, 10 and 11 at the time. And, uh, and, and we had backpacked through Asia and absolutely loved the region. So it just really seemed like a perfect fit. So, you know, we took the plunge and, and moved back uh, in 2000. Well, not back. We moved back to the NBA. But over to, to Hong Kong. And, you know, I grew up in Flushing, Queens, which has quite a large Chinese, um, Korean, uh, Chinese and Korean population. So mm -hmm. moving to Hong Kong didn't feel all that different, frankly. Uh, <laughs> okay. it, felt, it felt very natural. And my, my boys, you know, uh, it took one a little bit longer than the other, but they quickly made friends and, and enjoyed the school. And, you know, the tremendously welcoming community here, both of expats and, and locals and of course, the office already on the ground where, where at the time we had about 19 people. Right. It, it just felt like a very soft landing. And 
you know, immediately got to uh, traveling, frankly, you know, relatively shortly after we arrived here, we booked a trip, we went to Vietnam and Cambodia. And, and that started both the professional and the personal deeper exploration of Asia that I've been doing for the last 13 years. All right, cool. Well, let's talk a bit about that. Uh, and I can see your, your comparison of New York and Hong Kong, super buzzling city, busting city. You know, but the, the energy in it is just crazy. Um, you know, I lived in Hong Kong ages ago. It was 1994 uh, for about a year plus. And, uh, and I... The, the thing I remember is that people work so hard and basically around the clock. I mean, they, you know, the office lights never go down, and it just you know, and that and you know, there's actually someone in it. It doesn't forget to switch the lights off here. Um, and so, you know, coming from New York, I guess there's, there's some similarities to that. Uh, I can see that that you felt comfortable. Now, your remit was, of course, to develop the region. But that didn't necessarily always include China, right? Or were you still involved in China at the beginning? Or how did it sort of, what was your actual sort of uh, remit for the region? Yeah, by the time I arrived in 2009, we had uh, uh, created NBA China. And we had a CEO that was based up in Beijing and was responsible for the China business. So my remit was everything else in Asia, excluding greater China. Right. Uh, and, uh, you know, lots of countries that I really enjoy traveling to as well. <laughs> yeah, it's a it's a big region. Now again, you, you have you have this huge diversity from Japan, where you know even during that time, I've, you know, it, it was a top top country with you know strong TV and broadcasting deals. I'm sure out there, um, you had career uh, you know developing already very strongly, uh, and then you still have. I would say that the backwaters at that time, uh, Southeast Asia, India, where clearly the MBA was was still fairly small. Um, what was sort of your your first targets? Was it to go after the big countries and and try to generate more revenue there, or start to really start putting the first seats into these you know still less developed NBA uh, markets for you? Yeah, the first the first uh, job was to educate myself, uh, and you know after. After spending 10 years in New York, uh, all of which I had a, an international remit, I felt pretty confident that I understood uh, I understood Asia. Um, it took me about a month of being on the ground in Hong Kong to realize that I had a tremendous amount to learn. Mm -hmm. And uh, I had to kind of recalibrate a lot of things and take time uh, really getting out into the local community in every one of these countries, talk to partners, talk to uh, really anybody that would sit down with me for a coffee or a drink or a lunch and just have them kind of give me the lay of the land and, and start to get to a point where I understood the different dynamics in each country, you know, the consumer behavior, right. basketball popularity, technological development, economics. I mean, there's just, as you said, the diversity of the region is is unparalleled. And uh, to be to come in and feel like, all right, I think I understand Asia you know, I didn't understand a country in Asia, much less the region <laughs> of Asia. Uh, so uh, I really had to spend spend a lot of time and just just talking to people and learning from the local team that we had already. And it took me probably about you know somewhere between three and six months to have any idea of exactly what the NBA needed to do moving forward. And, and that's when I started to put a plan in place. And yeah, we did start with some of the more developed countries where you know we thought we saw that they were. Uh, clear revenue opportunities for the league. But it was also right about that time that we said, all right, well, how do we start to really grow the fan base? Like, how do we make sure this is a long-term growing opportunity for the NBA and not just an opportunity to, to grab checks where people were willing to offer them? Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. And again, you know, having watched and seen a bit what the NBA has done here really over the last several decades, of course, from my view as, you know, whatever, being some in the similar industry, um, you, you guys have done some great stuff. And I and I'd love to, I definitely want to talk a bit about it, what I've seen what you did in India and, and places like that. Um, so, you know, but there is one place and this is sort of, again, anyone in Asia knows it, but you know, maybe the rest of the world doesn't. The Philippines is this absolute basketball mad country. You know, of course, comes from the legacy that the Americans were there during the World War. Um, and compared to the rest of Asia, where you have mostly football and a certain blocks, of course, cricket um, and then a bit of baseball in, in the north, um, you know, the biggest and maddest basketball country is the Philippines. Let's talk a bit about that. You know, what was your experience there, and and you know what you know some fun stories you have. Yeah, just just incredible the passion for the sport. It, it's definitely the highest basketball affinity market in the world, and uh, you know they have a, a very successful uh, local basketball league that really plays all right. year. That you know all year long. That started in the seventies and. Um, uh, you know, it's a, it's it's. We used to say that you know people would buy our business cards if they could, just because it had the NBA logo. Uh, <laughs> right. You know, one one of, one of my my favorite stories is we we brought the you know the, the head coach of the Miami Heat, uh, Eric Spolstra, is Filipino, and uh, we brought him back several times. And I was once going with him through customs, and as we were going through, I was telling our security team that you know what you're about to see is going to be uncontrollable. So. Uh, but know that it's all it's all love uh, mm. for Eric. So he walked through and they checked his passport. The rest of us were behind him. And as he walked through and all of the um, the people at immigration, the people working the passport booths realized it was Eric Spolstra. They all left their booth <laughs> and followed him on his way to baggage claim. So we're all the rest of us are all standing online with our passports in our hand, not knowing whether. We should just walk when, through when they're coming back and get our bags or <laughs> wait for somebody to come back. Um, it was just completely vacated. And uh, that showed kind of I mean, that was Eric being Filipino and the love of the sport kind of all came together. Um, those tours, we did four tours with him for consecutive years. And those were just like unlike anything I've ever experienced before. You know, just having a local hero, his his huge family and that he was he would throw a, a party for his extended family. Uh, every year and they would be you know cousins and uncles and and uh, who who knows who just coming down and eric had time for every one of them uh spent meaningful conversations with them and then would go out into the community i don't think he ever slept and just do these clinics where you know he would put you know 12 13 14 year old kids through professional clinics and and they would have the greatest time it was it was just spectacular and really any any NBA player or legend that we brought through right. would have an incredible reaction, but Eric's was was really unique. Right. Yeah, I can imagine. And and I, I have my own uh, little basketball story there. Uh, actually, basketball was my very first uh, career, my first job when I came to Asia uh, with the Asian Basketball Confederation at that time, ABC as they were called. I was running their marketing or creating their sort of commercial programs here. And, and I did an event in Manila as well in 1995 or whatever, long as it's back now. And it was insane. Um, and here's this is actually the funny part, which links to the story here. Um, I had come from the U.S. I studied in the U.S. Obviously, I'm German. Uh, so my only reference to basketball was the NBA by watching, you know, Michael during during his era there uh, when I was studying. 
And so that was my idea of basketball, um, that, which is at that time, this is, you know, we're going 25 years back, was very different than what I, what I call FIBA basketball, right? The International Federation of Basketball had a very different style of playing. There was no mascots. There was no music. There was no cheerleaders. But that's obviously what I <laughs> watched in the U.S. on TV. And when I came here to Asia, that was my thinking of that's how basketball should look like. So I had great conversations and, and not so fun uh, debates with my colleagues there in in manila which as you said you know basketball is in their blood they knew a whole lot more about basketball than i knew um but here comes this german kid thinking he knows a bit about it um it worked all out and we had an amazing event and we actually did have mascots and music and all the stuff which as i said the nba already was doing at that time um for the very first time in a more asian basketball event it was a lot of fun so uh, yeah i've had some great memories of 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 my you know filipino days there um <laughs> yeah there there's some fun stories there we could talk longer uh, now let's talk india again massive country uh everyone is it's the passion for their own for their let's say sport cricket is beyond um and even football and other sports have, you know, barely sort of cracked it. Uh, but at the same time, you have a few, you know, you have over a billion people there. So it is an important market for anyone to consider. Uh, talk a bit about it, all the things you guys did uh, from a grassroots level point of view up to, you know, bringing players and, and others. Uh, yeah, you know, it was more, more than a decade ago, we, we, uh, we made India a priority, and since then, since then we've been focusing on building our fan base and introducing the game in different ways. Um, you know, following the launch of our junior NBA program, I was in I was in Mumbai with Commissioner Adam Silver and and Sacramento Kings owner and and proud uh, Mumbaiker uh, Vivek Ranadive, mm-hmm. and we did a youth clinic with hundreds of kids uh, in in partnership with the Reliance Foundation. Uh, Nita Ambani was there with us as well. Um, you know, we it was we realized it was something special there. You know, participation at a young age is really important, and it's clear that the kids understood the game, enjoyed the experience. And the parents and teachers were really enthusiastic as well. Um, so we've really focused our time and energy on kind of building pathways and making sure that you know if you wanted to pursue the sport of basketball, you you had some opportunity. Whether that you know you're starting from five years old, really all the way um, to to joining uh, the NBA. I mean, we've even had one success story where Principal Singh uh, played for one year in the in the G League uh, in the U.S. So right. what what we're seeing in India, I mean, think about what's happened in the last kind of 15 to 20 years. I mean, there was no IPL. Um, there was no ISL, the local soccer league. There's no, yep. no body league. All these things have started up in the last 15 to 20 years and have turned into – uh, you know, have passionate followings and strong interest. And, and so it's really nascent, you know, the sporting landscape in India, but it's, it's growing, it's growing uh, along with interest, right? The country has more than a billion people, growing middle class, increasing disposable income, and, and really importantly, a median age of what, maybe 28. Mm-hmm. So, you know, Absolutely. we see this as a market that is, everything is working in our favor, for the long term, and we want to make sure that we are we're in early. We understand this is going to be, you know, a, kind of a, a long runway to get yep. things to a really meaningful business. But all the dynamics are are playing to our advantage. Absolutely. Now, an interesting here question I have for you is if again sort of a parallel. You look at Africa, and and the NBA obviously launched NBA Africa. 
Um, this is sort of pre-COVID, and, and I'd love to actually hear. You know, I know you're obviously not directly involved, but uh, I'm sure you would know about it where it is right now, uh, whether it actually got off the ground because I sort of recall it was sort of before COVID happened and as usual things might have slowed down. But, you know, would, would the NBA ever consider trying to say, look, let's set up NBA India as a league um, to support the local development and, again, being as, being as big as the country it is, um, you know, build something out there? Uh, so, yeah, Africa, I mean, the, the BAL's just, you know, uh, almost through its second season right now. Right, okay. And uh, yeah, the timing the timing of the launch was definitely very challenging. Our team on the ground in Africa has done an absolutely amazing job of uh, adjusting to the challenges by country. You know, we're talking about a continent here, not a country. Correct. correct. And uh, and I'm I'm thrilled and 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 so happy for them that they've been able to get through this and that the interest continues to grow. I mean, we have outside investors, including many uh, former NBA players who right. have. Are actively involved in the league, and it's off. To, it's off to a great start. But of course, as you said at the beginning, um, it's going to be a, a kind of long runway, and it's going to take some time for that to become the the business that we think it can be. Uh, in in India, you know, we are already closely engaged with all the local basketball constituencies, and you know, so when you say, would we ever consider? Yeah, we never say never, but we want to make sure we're doing it in conjunction with the local sport. And sure. that's really important. And you know, we're not looking to come in over the top. You know, FIBA is active there. The the BFI uh, is running many programs there. We we have we have focused our energy uh, primarily on youth and creating a pathway. We have a an academy uh, there where we've had more than 20 kids that have now gone through our academy that are playing in the U.S. Both boys and girls, mm-hmm. either in prep schools or universities. Right. So we we want to continue to escalate the you know, the, the level of talent, but on the, on the top end, we're, we're going to take a lot of our direction from the local basketball operators and, and make sure that we're supporting them and helping what their efforts are instead of just coming in and, and determining what's right for the country. Yeah. No, no, and I, I appreciate the, the sensitivity to it. Um, you know, if you take a place like China where there was a league and, and there, there's a different mentality versus I think a place like India, uh, they could potentially welcome that if someone would come in and put, you know, at the end of the day, the same way, you know, I, the ISL, uh, the, the the cricket league was launched, and of course the the football league were launched. Um, it required money, as it always does, um, and it would do obviously the same here. If you look at the same in, in basketball, right? Um, so whether it's the IPL, you know, or the ISL, um, they, they didn't start, you know, with with uh, with nothing. They had a massive backing, and then it took off. Um, I think basketball could be similar, um, and not saying they couldn't do it themselves, but clearly the NBA would obviously could lend a big hand there. Is an interesting thought. Um, the uh, let's move on a little bit into the world of media and again you know my uh, one of my colleagues now we're working together on a project Claude Rubal who I do believe you know each other well too um, he always likes to use the NBA as this sort of shining light of where the world is heading or where sports is heading and and I'd love you to give us a bit of an inside look into this what you guys been building there that of course is the NBA digital platforms uh, your OTT platform um, and then we'll talk about, of course, NBA Top Shots as well. But uh, let's go, first stick to the uh, to the direct-to-consumer platform which you have. Um, and here in Asia, I at least remember this again is probably at least a couple of years back. 
um, that you were starting to offer already on a match by match basis. And I think it was maybe a dollar, or I might be even wrong there, but um, the, again, trying to bring it to a local level where someone can afford it and be, become part of that journey, of course, which is outside of whatever your traditional television distribution would be. Uh, talk us a bit through that. Yeah, of course. I mean, this the the NBA League Pass product is uh, absolutely a, a core focus for us as we continue to develop. And, and and you you hit you hit it on the head when you said we want to make sure that everyone can participate in in that relationship. So uh, we've had a lot of fun with this product over the years. Uh, technology continues to develop, and as a result, we're able to offer our fans all kinds of different experiences. We now have. Uh, a, a wide variety of languages, so you can you can follow even if you're not in that particular country, you can watch uh, the language of your choice. We have uh, a variety of different feeds, including mascot cam and referee cam, where mm. you know you you get different experiences depending on you know maybe your age or you're just your the way you want to watch a game. And we have a partnership with a company called Kizway where we have local casters, really anybody sitting in their, in their home can become a commentator right. uh, of the game. And so we've used local influencers, for example, in Indonesia, uh, just celebrities that are super passionate basketball fans, and they have their own feed. So if mm-hmm. you want to watch the celebrities call the game, and, okay. uh, you're not necessarily getting the, the absolute best play-by-play, but you're getting a whole lot of different – so you, you, you took some learning from Twitch here, um, yeah, and, and that's yeah. on your NBA League Pass, actually. Yes, that's right. On, that's cool. The League Pass. It. So there, there are all kinds of different ways, and and, and we continue to develop, uh, you know, as these as the technology allows us. So now, you know, we're we're working on membership programs. We're incorporating lots of free content that will allow you to stay connected with the NBA, as you mentioned all kinds of different pricing packages and camera angles uh, that, you know, whether, you know, at one point we even had, you know, you can join in the fourth quarter and just by the fourth quarter of the yeah, game. That's right. But, but the best part is we're doing this by country. Hmm. So, you know, there are clearly global overlays in some of the accessibility, but working with local partners, we're now introducing more local payment solutions. We want to make it as easy as possible for you to, to participate through that and right. not have to use a credit card in countries where the penetration is low. Yes. Uh, we want to have more local partnerships like we have in Rakuten. NBA Rakuten app is a, is a dedicated partnership with Rakuten right. where fans can, can access a somewhat different product there as well. And similarly with Eklat in Korea. Uh, we have a structure there that that's unique. So it's really, really important that when you experience League Pass, again, like we talked about from the difference, diversity of Asia, it's the experience is what you want, not necessarily what the NBA has decided is our global yeah. plan. Yeah, no, I love it. Now, Rakuten, again, this is for everyone that's in Japan, obviously, and I do remember reading about the deal you did. Is it outside as well or it's just for Japan specific? Yeah, well, we have two partnerships. There are actually – Rakuten is is very very involved in the NBA. So there are yes. we have a partnership with Rakuten around media that's just for Japan. Um, we have a global marketing partnership with them, and they also are the uh, badge partner of the Golden State Warriors. So you'll right. see them on Correct. their uniform. Yeah, they're they're definitely very involved. Um, now. You know, just to give a sense here, what what would be, you know, and maybe it's not Asia, maybe it's another part of the world, but what, what is sort of the cheapest entry ticket um, if I wanted to watch a game somewhere in the world, if I would live in the Philippines or somewhere other part of the world? Uh, how cheap is it just to give a sense of pricing, you know, for others? 
Do you do you mean uh, through League Pass? Yeah, through League Pass, correct. If you obviously watch it on free on TV for free, that's different. But uh, you know, if if it's a match you couldn't get on TV and you have the NBA League Pass. Yeah, I mean, so we absolutely want to make sure that, you know, we kind of do the business in tiers, as you just said. So there's some free exposure. There's going to be some pay exposure. And then if you want everything, uh, there'll be an opportunity. But depending on the country, I mean, you could get League Pass for as little as $10 the entire season. Wow. Okay. Uh, So so, for a whole season. Okay. Not even a game basis here. Okay. That's amazing. Um, Yeah. I mean, and I think that's, again, any sport which has obviously the volume of games which you guys have, um, that's always the challenge, right? How do you even get that amount of content on air? You know, there's no broadcast on the planet who obviously can deal with it. Um, So having your own channel, having your own distribution platform is really the way so that the fans can be very specific and follow their team or follow their player who they're interested in, right? And I'm sure that's all part of of the strategy, right? Our expectation is that everybody will watch every game. That's 15 games a day. (laughs) Exactly. Uh, That's our goal. That's that's what Adam tells us. Uh, Of course, yeah, we we, want to make sure that you can follow the game in whatever stage of life, area of the world, whatever you might be going through. So that's why if you go to YouTube, there's a tremendous amount of highlights and coverage of the game there. If you go to social media, you're going to be able to, you know, in in virtually real time, follow the game, follow the particular players that you want, um, and all the way, you know, scaling up to League Pass, where you know we're exper- experimenting with specific player cameras. So you may want to just follow LeBron or or follow uh, John Moran uh, in that game. So we we want this to be as uh, bespoke as we can possibly make it, and. Uh, as again, as technology develops, we are now getting more and more feedback from our fans, so we can incorporate that uh, both through the data and, and you know the way they use our our experiences, but also in communication, the way they're sharing uh, their thoughts on that. So we are we are always in development mode. We are always adjusting the way our products are delivered, uh, both pricing, language, specific content, way you can the ways you can access it. Um, that is just a day-to-day experience, particularly for our next-gen team that's based in the U.S. And, and I'd love to stick to that for a minute here, short-form content. Uh, I mean, we all, I think, in the industry still believe the live content is still what is the most important part. But we all know as well that the younger generation does consume differently in short-form clips and everything you mentioned earlier already um, is all part of that. Um and I, of course, see it here when I look at the NBA games. There's, you know, a 10, 10 minute clip, I think, on YouTube. I can, you know, catch up with what I missed overnight, especially with the time zone difference. Asia isn't probably the best part of the world um, to watch the NBA because it's always mostly very early in the morning here. Um, how important is clips and or short form and how do you guys monetize it? You know, maybe if you could share a bit on that. Yeah, it's it's very important for engagement. And. Uh, and it's got you know, what makes it you know this industry so much fun is it's constantly changing. I mean now, you know, you know the, the even the question of vertical video versus horizontal video is right. something that you know you constantly have to be adjusting as as you know TikTok has has changed a lot. Yeah. In, in and the, and you guys doing some of that already? Are you creating uh, vertical uh, video yes. already? All right, okay, yes. cool. And we'll we'll continue to to introduce more and and again more bespoke versions of that. So. Mm. Um, yeah, the uh, the uh, it's 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 just critically important to make sure that we're continuing to to listen to our audience and and short form content was for a while 
the absolute that was that's what everybody wanted. But now we're finding that you know people want to consume longer content. They want to get deeper into a story. And you know our programming team in Asia is creating longer form content that people are consuming on social on YouTube. Um, so and it, when you say longer, of, longer is well, give me a sense. Um, anywhere from twenty minutes to an hour. Okay. All right. Yeah. That's uh, okay. Yeah, and you could, you know, you thought that people wouldn't sit there for an hour on their phone watching content, but it's proving that people people will. Okay. Yeah, so it's sort of in the middle, right? It's not a full game yet, but it's, uh, you know, an hour, that's a, that's a considerable amount of time, of course, especially if you would, would watch it on a phone. Um, now, again, like I said, the NBA is clearly always at, at the forefront of it, and uh, and, and so I'm, I'm, I would encourage everyone to keep watching what you guys are doing there because um, you're just uh, you know, constantly re you know innovating there, which which I love the most about it. Um, now, to commercial partnerships in terms of you know sponsors, I haven't seen as much the NBA creating local partnerships in the region. Um, what I've seen more is that your know, big international partners, which you have, the McDonald's or others of the world, and you know, coming along and doing things here. Uh, how much is that part of the strategy or is there some, you know, an opportunity to grow? It's definitely an opportunity to grow, but it varies by country and, and, and it generally follows basketball affinity. So in countries like Australia and the Philippines and Japan, we, we do have sponsors and companies are using our intellectual property to grow their business. In other countries like, you know, say Indonesia, Vietnam, uh, we're still growing the fan affinity to a level where I think companies will, will see the value of that association. It's actually, you know, one of my frustrations, we, we built this incredible program, uh, you know, with junior NBA across Southeast Asia and India. And we have more than 40 million kids that have been directly wow. impacted by this program. We have, you know, thousands of teachers that come together for our junior NBA coaches academy, and uh, they are um, they are going back into the community and uh, and and teaching more kids and teaching other teachers. So, and, and we have millions of followers on social media across our our junior NBA handles. So, you know, this is a really meaningful program. It has the messaging is about being healthy and living an active lifestyle. And we have clearly have critical mass. And, you know, we haven't we haven't yet, uh, you know, locked in a whole bunch of companies that want to associate with this program. That's really, uh, you know, right at the top of the list of, th for, of things for us to do is to communicate that this is built. I mean, we have government officials like Agnes Basweden in, uh, in Indonesia who's the governor of Jakarta tweeting out and attending all these events and, and you know it's it's just an iconic program with an incredible following and there should be you know companies tripping over themselves to get engaged in something with such a positive message but we just haven't gotten there yet so that that's really on our, our short-term roadmap interesting and again i mean just recalling china is a bit the opposite you know if at least i remember reading about it a few years back it was always close to about 100 licensing partners across different level and that some could be sponsors some could be i guess just uh you know putting the the logo on certain uh, merchandise or other things i mean that's you know china is the the i guess probably the extreme example where the local brands have really taken on uh you know obviously the the uh, the partnership in a big way, right? Absolutely. If China, China is one of the top, Philippines is right there, and then, you know, we have other countries again where basketball is really popular in other parts of the world where we have quite a few sponsors uh, associating in the ways you just described. 
Yeah, yeah. Amazing. Well, well, we could keep going here, but I, I'm also conscious of time, so I sort of want to slowly get uh, wrap it up here. Um, and, and as part of it is, of course, is that I believe you are leaving now after you know more than two decades uh, with the NBA. Um, you're looking to move on for something new. Tell us about this, or what can you tell us about it? <laughs> Yeah, yeah. So I guess uh, at the time that this uh, people will be listening to this, uh, the the news will be out. Um, and yeah, I mean, really, it's it's come down similar to what I described when I I left the NBA for the first time. I've now lived in Asia for 13 years, and uh, it was quite a lot of my family back in New York. And and not surprisingly, things continue to march forward with them. And uh, you know, I really want to spend more time uh, you know, with my sister, with my one of my sons you know, lives here in Asia, but another one lives over in, in the U.S., uh, mother-in-law and extended family. So, you know, I've decided that I want to spend about half the year in the U.S. and the other half of the year in Asia. Okay. And, uh, you know, I want to uh, really focus my time around uh, advising, mentoring, some investing, you know, companies. You know, I'm really interested and excited about the Web3 space, right. and I've been spending a lot of time educating myself and meeting with people similar to what I did you know, before I started at the NBA when I was traveling through Asia, and, and I'd like to spend more time here. Um, I think this is going to be incredibly impactful for our business. There are going to be just incredible number of applications, and, and they're going to change the business once again. So I'd like to be at the forefront of that, and while I, I've had an incredible run at the NBA, uh, I just couldn't I, I couldn't uh, base myself in any one location anymore. And to do this job, I need to be in Asia to work out of the New York office. I need to be in the U.S. And uh, I really want to be everywhere yeah, all the time. So I'm going yeah. to become a digital nomad. Yeah, here we go. Well, you know, and for anyone listening, ever needing an expert in this space, um, now they know you're out there. That's fantastic. And and you, luckily, you 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 just brought up Web three because I almost forgot about it. Obviously, I do want to talk about the NBA Top Shots and the NFT space, and again, the the huge. Uh, opportunity which which you guys created around it uh, can you share a little bit not just from an asian perspective but i guess from your from a global perspective of really how it worked and you know how it took off and you know and maybe even what you see here um how it responds in asia uh, yeah it just i mean you think about it, it feels like that was 15 years ago yeah exactly. uh, but obviously it's, it's just recent and, and you know the the nba you know i was just on a call last night uh a group of us with with uh commissioner adam silver and you know, he, he's always pushing us to be uh, first and to be best. And, and this is just another example. I mean, there is this new technology that was coming out, NFTs. And, you know, we we didn't fully understand it, but we, we saw there was some potential here. And mm. uh, so we kind of just dipped our toe in the water. I mean, I don't think anybody at the NBA uh, expected it to be as big as it turned out to be. But we wanted to be in it and we wanted to be early adopters of the technology. So. Um, I, I like when you say tip your toe in it. I mean, again, I'm not sure these are the latest numbers either, but the numbers which were out there was like in the ballpark, close to a billion dollars worth, of course, of revenue or, or trading, uh, I guess, volume. Um, I know that's not all initial trading volume. Some is then how people sell it on. 
Um, so it's not a billion dollars coming to the NBA, but a you know portion of that through fees and transaction and everything else. Um, it's incredible, right? It, it wasn't. Uh, it, it's not small by any means. Um, now, I haven't seen the latest figures, and I'm sure with certain you know with crypto currently going through winter, um, I, I'm assuming it impacts the uh, top shot as well. There, but what, what's sort of the big, the long term picture currently? What what is it? What you guys see in internally? Um, is you know is it the same way people forever bought baseball or, or you know certain cards physical card trading cards I guess basketball trading cards um, is that sort of just well crypto will be there in the same way or digital cards will be there in the same way forever um, is that the belief or what do you guys see after this year and you know almost maybe two years now since the uh, two and a, you know year and a half I guess since the the the, the NBA talk shows kind of took uh, center stage. Uh, I'm definitely not going on uh, recording and predicting how this is going to develop. I think that would <laughs> that would not be good for my future. But um, I, I think it's going to be exponential, uh, and and I, I, there's no way I can anticipate all the different ways. But there there's already so many applications, you know, art, collectibles, all the things in the metaverse, um, you know, NFTs that are uh, that have utility and give you some benefit. Um, you know, DAOs are interesting as well. They're just sure. there's so many components to this, and and what what people are getting caught up, you know, the hype around, you know, token appreciation. Uh, I think that obfuscates the the what's happening in the background. I mean, there are there's a tremendous amount of building going on on these platforms, and you know, applications are coming out virtually every day uh, that uh, with with concepts that we've never heard of, right? So you know, when you think of you know, there's, there's an app. Step in, which has launched recently, where you actually can generate income by uh, going hiking and running. Uh, you know, that's a brand new application. I don't know if that will be sustainable, but that was brand new; wasn't thought of a year ago, or maybe even three months ago. Right. So I, I think you know, and of course, gaming is a huge application for this right. as well. So you know, we at the NBA, we want to play in all of these spaces, similar to to Top Shot. We, we want to, to try them all out. We want to see which ones are going to be successful. We understand some of them might not be. But again, we want to be with partners that are, um, you know, they're, they're going to establish themselves that do things the right way, that have the right level of integrity. We're not, you know, interested in pumping tokens. We're not interested in, uh, you know, making sure that, you know, whatever we buy goes up in massive value on the, you know, on the exchange. So, you know, we're, we're going to be careful, but we're also going to be aggressive. And I expect that we'll have multiple partnerships in this space uh, by the end of 2022 and even more coming online in 2023. And I'm super excited to see all all the different applications that are going to come out that we haven't – that brilliant entrepreneurs and, and builders are currently working on. Uh, I definitely want to – I want to be totally immersed in it as much as I can. So Yeah, there's uh, an amazing space. I'm playing in it too. And, and like I said, every day you learn something new or every week there is something new, uh, you know, even in the winter is there, you know, that's uh, the crypto world happening, but uh, that doesn't impact, like you said, what's really happening behind the scene, uh, what blockchain is bringing to it. Um, and, you know, what Web3 will really be all about. Um, now, again, I'm certain you probably can't answer this question, but I ask it anyway. Um, are there plans for an NBA metaverse um, or a form of it? Well, you know, in the reality, we 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 really have one already. I mean, think about the NBA 2K experience. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, that, that early, I mean, 2K has been 
uh, well ahead of this curve, thinking about you have your general manager mode. You could uh, obviously dress your players and you have opportunities for microtransactions and to build. You could play online with friends around the world. Right. So, you know, we're, we're going to be through our partners in a variety of metaverses. And, and I think that will all of that will continue to develop. Uh, whether there'll be an independent uh, NBA metaverse, I'll leave that one for people to follow and talk. Uh, that that will probably be a little bit down the road, if at all. Yeah, no, I agree. Yeah, and NBA 2K obviously has a, let's call it, video game, how it started. And as you already said, it evolved into so much more. Again, hugely successful. Um, and uh, and another, just another huge tool in your arsenal there, or in the NBA's arsenal, that's for sure. Uh, and, and of course, we've also been active with, you know, with others like Fortnite, where we had actually had over 16 million fans visit the nba hub in, in the game during during all-star week you know all right okay so, I, I i guess i didn't catch that so so you had that you had some uh you know content in Fortnite uh, around the uh, the all-star game or yes exactly all right, and, cool. and, and and yeah we want to work with these companies that are, are doing all these innovative things uh, yeah yeah no very cool I, and i exactly i love what Fortnite is doing and how they're bringing uh, activities in. Actually, I wanted to bring this match, which we have here in Thailand, uh, Manu Liverpool, I wanted to bring it into the metaverse, uh, but the clubs are still a little hesitant there um, to let me play there. But um, I think that's the future, um, especially if it's friendlies where, where you're not, like I said, you don't have the restrictions from the leagues or things around it. I think you can really go a bit crazy there, but let's see where we go there. Um, now, let's wrap it up here and, you know, I think we should talk a bit about what's happening in the season. Uh, you know, we are at the tail end of it, uh, the uh, the conference championship just starting. Uh, we got Miami Heat and Boston Celtics, the top two seats there in the Eastern Conference, and then we got Golden State Warriors and the Dallas Mavericks in Western uh, third and fourth seats there. So clearly, the top teams somewhat have made it through there, and uh, some awesome players. Uh, you know, some of the new generation clearly. You know, was Doncic and Tatum and others, and then you still have Stephen Curry there as well. Um, Sounds like an exciting, you know, matches coming here, and over the next few weeks, uh, we'll see, you know, who be who will get to the final and beyond. Uh, what's your own thought on it, and and or prediction of you know uh, for the rest of the season here? Well, I'm just excited to be able to take a breath. Uh, the reason we're doing we're recording today is because today's a day off in the season, and uh, the 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 games the games in the first two rounds of the playoffs have just you know I'm I'm a basketball fan, NBA fan, and uh, the games have just been spectacular. The the two game sevens that we had yesterday, those series were so compelling all the way through. And mm. two young teams, you know, Jason Tatum and, and Luka Doncic are, are so young. And, you know, we had John Morant. We, I mean, this this is a time in the NBA where, you know, the generations we have, you know, on the kind of older end, players like LeBron and Steph Curry. Uh, in the middle, you've got, you know, Kevin Durant and Kyrie and, uh, of course, Giannis, and then yeah. you know you've got John Morant and Luca and Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown. So I think these conference finals are going to be epic. Uh, I don't even know how else to describe them. There are four teams that are playing extremely well. Golden State just got healthy uh, right at the right time. Mm. Dallas just you know beat an incredible Phoenix Suns team and seem to be gelling their their players. I can match. Up, you know, they have these, you know, five players that can really cover anybody. They just switch on anybody. You know, Jason Tatum, 
you know, it's just becoming a superstar, you know, in, in front of our eyes. And, Absolutely. you know, I go back to Eric Spolstra, our, you know, our favorite coach taking the Miami Heat, the number one seed in the East. And once again, he's in the conference finals. He seems to be making a habit of this. And uh, what he can do with the team is just spectacular. So I just can't wait to sit back. And now we have a game every single day. You know, one one west, one east, all the way through to the finals, and yeah. I can't wait to watch it as a fan. Yeah, absolutely. Now it should be exciting stuff here, and uh, I'll definitely be watching a bit too. Um, Scott, that was a lot of fun. Uh, you know, we 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 got it all a little less than an hour and a half here, but uh, a lot of really good content of across the board. Uh, any last thoughts? Uh, anything we missed? Uh, which you'd love to share? Uh, only that I I'm, I'm excited to, that the world is opening up again and. We could all start traveling, uh, getting back in front of our partners and, and continuing to do the business that you and I have, have done for a long time. It's it's exciting to get back on the road. Uh, it's always great catching up with you, Mark. This has been a, a, a lot of fun, and I look forward to seeing you in person sometime soon. Definitely. See you here in Bangkok or in Hong Kong. And uh, thanks for your time, and I really enjoyed this. And we'll talk soon. Same here. Thanks a lot. Cheers. The Sports Entrepreneurs by Marcus Lure Podcasts are a collection of interviews and stories. All content in this podcast is the copyright of Marcus Lure. Reproduction and distribution of the presentation without written permission of the owner is prohibited. All rights reserved.